Chapter 27 Ruth liked having a headache when she was going over her correspondence. It made her feel like she had a real job. As the wife of an MP, she received the kinds of letters which, it was imagined, men would never be able to understand. Over the past year, she had grown used to a number of catchphrases. First were the openers. There was the standard Mrs. Spencer. Then there was the feminist Miss Spencer. Then there was the overfamiliar Dear Ruth, or just Ruth, or horror of horrors, Ruthie, as if the letter were a note scribbled in haste from her oldest friend. There were also the amusing, To the power behind the throne, or To the person whose husband I voted for so I could send you this letter. The opening sentences were also repetitive and would never be addressed to a man. There was the desperate, I am truly at my wit's end, which Ruth did not like particularly because of its assumed chummy female solidarity. Men don't notice such things or care if a woman is at her wit's end, but you, as a woman, will care. There was also the falseness of, I really don't know who else to turn to. If you are turning to strangers, you have surely widened your options to more than just one stranger. There was also the instant intimacy of, as a woman, I know you will understand when I say, or the backstory of, when I was young, I never expected that this would happen to me. There was also the uselessness of, I have not written to ask anything of you, but thought you might find the following history informative. There were also the paper cutters. A surprising number of people followed her career and sent her photographs of herself in the newspaper, often with fashion or makeup tips. An elderly woman in Yorkshire disapproved of almost everything Ruth wore, circling with a heavy inked pen all the flesh left exposed by her outfits. It seemed that Ruth would only find her approval by appearing in public in a burqa or a small pup tent. Instructively, a divorcee in Cheltenham thought that Ruth's costumes did not show enough skin and warned her that men do not like to stick around a woman who is not appealing, and if he leaves you, you lose the power to strike blows for women. Obviously, thought Ruth, her parting with her husband was neither mutual nor amicable. Another woman was always giving her advice on how to manipulate Quentin. Just wriggle up to him, sit on his lap, cup his cheek, kiss his forehead, and ask for a little favor in a breathy voice. Don't be afraid to pout, she added helpfully, though that made Ruth sigh deeply, toying with her hair. I think that Quentin has had quite enough pouting from me. There were occasionally simple, direct appeals. My husband was lost at the Somme, but he enlisted too young, and they keep cutting off my benefits. My neighbor's dog keeps barking. They start construction on my street at 6 a.m., and I am a shift worker. What am I to do if I am owed money by brothers of mine? My son is missing, and the police are doing nothing about it. It was a little perplexing to Ruth. When Quentin had been elected, she had thrown herself into learning about politics, economics, law, and parliamentary procedure. She had emerged from her cocoon to help him on the campaign trail, and then she had begun receiving all these letters, and thought that she should filter them before presenting them to Quentin. At first, she thought 
it was just a blip in the general trend, but almost all her letters were from women, and they were all so, so resolutely personal. She had never once received a letter saying, you just march right off and tell your husband that the problems with the economy all started when England went off the gold standard in 1932. No, they were all about how the government was supposed to help these women deal with difficult neighbors, runaway husbands, pregnant daughters, rude shopkeepers, and all the petty crusades of petty people. And there were a lot of abandoned mothers turning in extremis to the clammy arms of the government. This filled Ruth with a vague disquiet. Why, in my day, when I was young, this was all handled by the church, fathers, and the brandishing of firearms. But now, women had the vote, and they wanted to use the government to save their children. And Ruth was anxious that this should prove to be a rather unholy union. Combining the amoral passion of women for the protection of their children with the legal power of legislation? Ah, I wonder if we shall not all be enfolded in the dark arms of the state before long. In her youth, Ruth had been a fairly competent mathematician and knew that the odds of her receiving an economically aware letter from a woman were less than stellar. For the first few months, she had simply assumed that the more erudite female letters were being addressed to her husband. After all, no one would assume that I know anything about economics. So she had asked him about it one evening after dinner. She always kept political discussions away from the table to aid digestion. They were sitting in the living room before a comfortable fire, and Ruth truly felt, and it was a wonderful feeling, that the house was a kind of huge, soft bird, and they were nestled in its belly, safe from the world, and quite at peace. She glanced over at Quentin, who was reading, his eyelids lowering. Except for Reginald, she thought, is there anyone in this family who goes to sleep in their bed? And she suddenly saw that he had aged. It came to her in a little rush. Aging happens so slowly. It is like the fading of a painting. Colors are lost so gradually that one is never sure that the brighter colors of the past were not just painted by imagination. But he was aging. His forehead was folding over his eyebrows in a slow Cro-Magnon droop. His long, thinning gray hair now looked like the hollow outline of a hairstyle. She admired the thick tenacity of the remaining strands. They're like an army spread too thin which still refuses to give in, she thought, enjoying the rhythm of the words. Tears appeared in Ruth's eyes. The political discussion was going to have to wait. She thought of his patience over the years of her depression. He never once pressed himself upon me. He was always there. He bought me biscuits, sent me postcards. He helped my mother when she died, when I could not. Ruth was, without a doubt, a sentimental woman, and that sentiment had no small relation to her depression, since sentimentality is brutalized by the natural losses of mammals in a wild world. But her sentiment having forged an avenue of lost statues where her future was supposed to be, could also work in reverse. Her history with Quentin had not been peaceful. 
He had withdrawn more than he had comforted. She knew this, but now questioned whether she could have been comforted in the first place. And would it not be galling for him, the consummate man of action, to be helpless in the face of my... my... I have been far from the perfect wife. To help him, I demanded that my son be bribed, and still he comes home and takes my hand before dinner. It had not been perfect, but it could have been much worse. Sometimes that is all the soil that sentiment needs to flower high and wide. I love you, she said, deep into the ticking of the hallway clock. His eyes jerked open. Their blue had faded over the years. Quentin did not look at her. He stared into the fire, his brows contracted together very slightly. I don't know that, he whispered. How could you? She felt as if she were standing too close to a precipice with the buffeting wind behind her. How did we, to such a degree, lose these words? You have been very patient with me. I want him to cry, Ruth realized suddenly. I have cried more than enough for both of us. I have been a poor wife. It was a hard decade, said her husband. He took off his glasses, rubbed his eyes, and reclined his head, resting it on the back of the armchair. Without warning, he turned to Ruth and opened his pale eyes. Seeing his head at such an odd angle was eerily intimate, as if they were waking up together. I am too much of a f female, she said, brushing her hair back above her ears. I was lost in the war, but I wanted, had to, Please, everyone in the here and now, I felt your suffering, your loss every single day. I want you to know that. I felt it, and I was helpless to prevent it. I could not manage it. Ruth shook her head slowly. I want everyone to be happy. It is the curse of womanhood. If anyone grieves, I grieve tenfold. If anyone bruises, I bleed. If anyone bleeds, I break. If anyone breaks, I die. If anyone dies. It is entirely wrong, but it's not even a choice. But the boys, he said, she could hear the tentativeness in his voice, the fear of offending her. Now you really want to break me in two, she said with a wan smile. No, of course not. I was joking. Sorry. But, oh, these complications, nothing simple can be said simply. But it's not the boys I am thinking about. They and I will have to talk in time, hopefully, before they get married. But now I am thinking about you. I am very happy now with you. He closed his eyes briefly and then opened them slowly, little balls of wet blue. Aha! She thought, we have struck salt. But then she felt awful about the thought. He is 
crying because he was terribly afraid that he had made me unhappy. She frowned, then smoothed her face, not wanting Quentin to misinterpret her expression as disapproval. So, is... She said, then stopped. There was no way of asking whether her happiness was so important to him without sounding critical. We do not have the trust for such questions, she realized and felt very sad. But his tears were real, and he was not a weeper. That was Tom's occupation and her own. I am happy now, she repeated, and then, in a burst of warmth and kindness, and whenever I was not happy before, it was almost never your fault. His eyes narrowed a little, and she could sense his next question, the question he dared not ask. So whose fault was it? Ruth knew that it was a question which could not be answered, at least not until she met her father in the next world. Father, why was I so unhappy? she imagined asking, and then she imagined his slow, backlit, angelic reply. Because, my Ruthie, you ignored my last letter, and you turned your back on God. Ruth shuddered. Quentin had said something. Pardon? she asked. We can take care of each other from now on, he said, his head still at that odd angle. You have been a wonderful Mrs. M.P. Thank you, she said. And I'm sorry that I bullied you about Tom. I was, I was just so fearful for him. Not everything turns out well. He'll be fine, said Quentin. A little too quickly, Ruth thought, but... Her husband had never been keen on discussing his younger son. They settled into another silence, but it was a silence of hearts eased a little by the honest oil of new words about old deeds. Quentin, she said after measuring the silence by the chimes of the hall clock by a half hour. Yes, dear. I wanted to ask you something about your correspondence. You mean the people who write to me, or the letters I receive? Both. All right. He did not open his eyes. I'm listening, but my eyes are tired. When women write you letters, do they ever talk about economics? You mean the price of milk? Not home economics. National economics. He smiled, almost laughing. <laughs> oh, no. Never? Quentin did not have to think about it, which meant Ruth knew that he had either noted it already or considered it impossible. Never, he smiled suddenly. I thought maybe you got those letters. She returned his smile, which further eased her regrowing heart. No, you didn't. Why? Ruth leaned forward. Well, she said in the slightly conspiratorial tone she knew he liked so much, I've just noticed that economics is not so hard, but I never get any letters from women on economics. Why is that? Quentin thought for a moment. He was not thinking of what to say, but rather organizing his thoughts. Ruth was pleased. She had given him this advice after seeing his first few debates in the house, and he took it well, realizing that, having had ten years to organize her own thoughts, she truly knew of what she spoke, and was happy to note 
that it also now applied to his private conversations. Well, he said after a minute, why did you learn about economics? No, no, forget that. What do women expect from figures of authority? Submission to our manipulations. He smiled again, once more under the breach. Ruth suddenly remembered him whispering this phrase over her on their honeymoon. But that was another life, another body, another world. Hmm. All right. What do I want? Protection, of course. A certain amount of resources because of biology and the fact that men are supposed to provide them. She recalled her father and elder brothers but kept her course. So you're saying that women have not outgrown their faith in male authority and now expect from the government what they used to get from the patriarchy? Well, I haven't said it yet, but it is close. How would I put it? Quentin tapped his glasses against his teeth, opening his eyes briefly. Before, when his eyesight was better, he did it with pens, Ruth remembered. Women now have the vote he said, but they have only ever had a personal relationship with authority. So naturally they now have a personal relationship with the government. Women can no more explore the effect of changing interest rates on the national economy than men can explore reducing the deficit by clipping coupons. Ruth sucked in a breath. That's harsh, but well put. Since I entered politics, he sighed, I have become unbearably pithy. I was wondering this about women. It seems odd. Women wanted the vote because they thought they were as rational as men. They are. Wait, wait. So we got the vote and then we throw away all our credibility by wanting the government to take care of us. The poor, the aged, our children. The nanny state is not far off. Quentin smiled. I, at this moment, am very glad that my eeny, meeny, miny, mo method of choosing a party did not end at labor. If I may say so, you're right, and you're wrong. Thanks, and no thanks. It's not women who are the problem. They're just part of the problem. Ah, good. The poor want the wealth of the rich. There were property restrictions on voting throughout the 19th century for one simple reason. The poor outnumber the rich. So if everyone has a vote, all that will happen is that the poor will end up voting to take away the property of the rich, and everyone will end up impoverished. The sick want the money of the healthy. Manufacturers want to squelch unions. Unions want to squelch outside workers. Domestic companies want tariffs. Importers want no tariffs. Old companies want subsidies for obsolete products. Young companies want subsidies for new products. And women, ah, what women want. Finally, an answer. Women want protection and goods. They used to get it from men. Now they want it from the state. Why now? There are fewer men since. And there are always women falling through the cracks. They will agitate for what they need. I see. And your solution, Mr. Candidate? Solution? There's no solution. Doctors don't say we have a solution for dying. It's painful. It's sad. And it's inevitable. All we can do is manage the pain and hope for the best. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall finding that argument in any of your campaign literature. I think it was more than implied by the word compromise, which was displayed most prominently. So, if all these people can vote, but know nothing about economics, what will happen to us? What? 
Well, he yawned, we'll, we'll just keep muddling along the same way we have, the same way that the world always has. But don't you think that if things are set up poorly, that everything shall come to a bad end before long? I think you and I will come to an end long before England does, said Quentin, yawning again. He did not like her to be apocalyptic, even a little, even politically. It was too much like the bad decade. He smiled at her. Geologically speaking, the odds of the world coming to an end in our lifetime, or even changing significantly, are statistically insignificant. And with that, he kissed her forehead, then went up to bed. Ruth sat in the ticking silence, watching the fire fade into ashes. She did not feel depressed, but was filled with vague anxiety and apprehension that she could neither comprehend nor shake. The captains are confident, but the rudder swings unmanned, she thought over and over. But it did not make her depressed. In the great war, the world had surprised and undone her. Now, now she was out of bed, ready, alert, and more than willing to have a go at surprising the world. However, the next night, the world surprised her once more. The next night, voices roused Ruth, as they always did. Since recovering from her depression, she had rearranged the furniture, and occasionally she got out of bed the wrong way, hitting her head. This is not a sign, she said to herself, sitting on her dark sheets and rubbing her forehead. She heard voices downstairs. Throwing on a terry cloth bathrobe, she thought she heard Reginald's voice. Well, it was not so much that she heard Reginald's voice, but her heart froze a little within her, and her blood flow increased, and she surmised from these inescapable facts that he must be home. Ruth padded downstairs and found the men in the living room. Reginald! she cried. She always tried her best to make him feel welcome. Coming into the living room, she consciously uncrossed her arms. Mother! he exclaimed, his face mortified. God damn it! she thought, drawing back. How could I have possibly embarrassed him now? Ruth, said Quentin gently, we have a guest. Turning her head, she saw a young woman standing awkwardly to one side of the door. Mother, this is Wendy, said Tom, coming up and kissing Ruth on the cheek. Ruth glanced down at her own unkempt self, then up at the young woman. Come on, she thought, throw me a bone, a smile of sympathy for my predicament. But Wendy seemed to be embarrassed as well. Ruth took a deep breath. Well, I shall go back upstairs and dress properly for a visitor. Oh, that doesn't matter now, said Reginald. What's done is done. Sit down, mother. He took a seat in one of the plush armchairs across from the dark night glass of the bay windows. Quentin stood hesitantly for a moment. Come on, Tom, let's rouse Catherine and get Miss Wendy, Miss, some, Mrs. Some Coco. That's not really necessary, said Wendy. It's very nice to meet you, Mrs. Spencer. Likewise, said Ruth. Reginald coughed, narrowing his eyes. Tom, Quentin, and Wendy left the room. Reginald remained seated. He cracked his knuckles, staring out the black window, as if a wondrous view kept his attention. 
Ruth took an involuntary step towards the doorway to follow the others. She was unused to being in the same room as her eldest son. But something was afoot. Reginald cleared his throat. Ruth took another deep breath, willing her heart to slow down, and sat in a love seat across from Reginald, who sat behind a wide potted fern, half in shadow. Hello, mother, he said with an odd pointed smile, as if she had not greeted him. Hello, son, she replied. I am home early, he said. Is this supposed to be a prompt? she wondered. Oh, yes. Why are you home early? I met a woman in Spain, he said slowly, as if this should be obvious. This Wendy, what is her last name? He leaned forward. What happened to your face? She touched her forehead. I banged it. Been to the wars, have we? He smiled, recalling a wounded soldier phrase of his childhood. She smiled back, gamely. Ruth heard Catherine in the kitchen complaining about the late hour. The new woman's voice murmured something. The sound of a kiss puckered through the air. That'll be for Tom, thought Ruth, then turned back to her eldest son. The shadow of a leaf cut across his cheek, making him look like a savage who had painted half his face with darkness. He stood up, and she felt slighted again. Some agitation had a hold of him, and she was so used to being the cause of that. Reginald spun on her, almost violently scattering her thoughts. "'We got married, mother,' he said flatly. "'I wanted you to hear it first from me.' The room spun a little for Ruth. Several thoughts followed in quick succession. "'Before I had a chance to talk to you about who you are, are. I am not the first to be told. A Spanish priest was the first to be told, if it was a priest. Perhaps they were joined by a communist to breed reactionaries. He is too young, too immature, too Reginald to be married. I could be a grandmother within a year. So much of my life is behind me. Mother? He frowned. Are you all right? I'm... She faltered. Answer him. Don't irritate him by hesitating... I'm surprised. We met in Spain and fell in love and wanted to get married where we met. Is it legal? Here? He blinked. Is that the most important thing? What? What is the most important thing? Being happy for me. But, but am I happy for you? I am not happy for you. I can't imagine that you want my approval, Reginald. Why not? Isn't that the proper thing? Well, if you wanted my approval, you would have asked before... Reginald smiled indulgently. You mean, asked your permission? No, but no one likes to be rushed. I am not rushing you, mother, he said, leaning back and touching his fingertips together. Take all the time you want. Ruth felt a rush of anger, but it shorted out within her in an alarming manner. She frowned, trying to think of... But you want a reaction from me, she said finally. I want whatever you see fit to provide, he replied instantly, ever ready with an answer to stymie her. 
But tell me this, did you want me to have a big wedding like yours and father's? A freezing vice seemed to be closing around her heart. I cannot be angry with him. It will never end. She could not bear to look up at her eldest boy, her hands clenched. A kettle whined in the kitchen. She wanted to be in there, having coffee with Tom, talking this over, like the impulsive madness it was. Suddenly Ruth felt a strong impulse to smash the little light on the side table. She wanted to tower over her son in the darkness, force him to the floor, and demand obedience. She was a Hindu goddess, six scimitars in six hands. He was a sinful priest. Then the vision faded in an instant. "'Tell me all about it, mother,' smiled Reginald. Ruth swallowed. "'I am not happy with this.' "'I see. Why?' "'Because, because you cannot act unilaterally and then tell me about it and not be happy with my response.' "'Who says I am not happy with your response? "'To tell the truth, I would have been shocked beyond words "'if you had jumped up, hugged me, and said, "'Oh, Reginald, I am so happy for you.' "'What does being a husband mean to you?' she asked almost involuntarily. "'There was a dark pause which she could not help but taste as a minor triumph. "'I suppose,' he said slowly, taking his seat again, "'sliding into the bladed shadows of the shaggy fern, "'that I can best answer that in the negative. "'I want to love my wife. I want to love my children. "'I want to raise them correctly.' I want to accept them for who they are. I want them to love me back. I want them to know that I am proud of them, no matter what they do. I want my family to be gripped by love, but... He raised his hand, then let it drop on his lap. Oh, what's the use? Ruth swallowed. I... Why is that an answer in the negative? He just stared ahead, lower lip thrust out. "'Because you think I never gave that to you,' thought Ruth, but the words were impossible. It would be a fight without end. "'Tell me about her.' Reginald shrugged eloquently to say, "'All right, we shall not talk about anything important, then. "'Wendy is a free spirit. She was travelling with a friend who acted as our witness.' We were married in a small stone church. I knew that you wouldn't have liked that.' She has a good sense of humor and seems to understand me. She's not fussy. She has a strong constitution. Her family was unscathed by the war. She is going to face hell when she tells her family. I'm very glad that father is an MP now. Otherwise, it's a step up for all of us, he smiled. Something for Tom to aim for, mayhap, assuming she is not disowned. Ruth frowned. Tom? Well, if he ever digs himself out of living in a shoebox, which seems to be a family trait, at least among the more feminine among us, then he will have to settle down somewhere. It is unlikely that he will have much to bring to a match except some old rowing trophies and a handful of rusting charm, but he might learn something from being around a woman like Wendy, a woman who... Reginald paused delicately. Who... Well, who has some... standing, class... "'History, substance. "'He will have to surmount his history, of course, but it could be done. "'Does he mean me?' she thought. 
Catherine, mother, said Reginald patiently, I mean his affinity for sweet washerwomen. Ruth loosened her hands, which were like white rocks. You should not do such things for the instruction of your brother. He laughed. Oh, that's just a passing notion, unthought of until now. It's a fringe benefit, if it's anything. Wendy has a younger sister, a stunner by all accounts. All right, he said, clapping his thighs. Well, I have acted, I have come home, and I have told you. The ball is now in your court, mother. Shall I call her back in? Chapter 28 A month later, in his room in London, Tom awoke to find Gunther sitting in a chair at the foot of his bed. The German had aged well over the last six years. He was in his early fifties and was developing the lined, detailed features of late middle age. His eyes were wide and kind, and his cheeks and forehead were cut with deep, sharp creases as if he had won his wisdom in a vicious and protracted knife fight. Something flickered in his grey eyes when Tom sat up. Tom frowned, shook his head slightly, and then threw himself across the bed and hugged Gunther tightly. For Tom, there were two people whose embraces had always fitted him perfectly. One was Catherine, the other was Gunther. Life is a complex web of justice, and Tom was very interested in justice. Gunther, to him, had always represented justice. The German was fair and implacable. Manipulation is the great enemy of justice, but Gunther was immune to manipulation. Sometimes when Reginald's sneering overwhelmed him, Tom would sink back into the memory of Gunther, and it would help. He thought of that day when Gunther disciplined Reginald for failing to pick up his toys, or Many other days, other times, when Reginald's spite had thundered like an impotent wave against the breakwall of Gunther's will. Tom thought of the odd times when Gunther had engaged Quentin in an argument about some political or philosophical issue when he was nearby, and the clarity and rationality of the German man's position. Gunther had gone back to Germany in 1928 when Tom was 18. They had not seen each other much for the few years prior to 1928. When they did meet, Gunther came to Tom's boarding school and they had lunch or spent a Saturday together. The first time, Reginald came along but found the conversation so boring that he had excused himself ungraciously early. That evening he had insinuated that Gunther had some sort of homosexual interest in Tom which almost caused a fistfight. The only reason it had not occurred was that Reginald had taunted Tom by saying that Tom only wanted to fight him because of his repressed sexual desire for Gunther. Tom found Gunther fascinating. He was a scientist specializing in radio waves, but spoke very little about his work. They had a number of topics which they enjoyed, European politics, Ruth before the war, philosophy... Gunther had a merry way of challenging Tom's beliefs, which made Tom race along unguessed paths of thought like a mad hare. The atheism which Tom had inherited from his mother had, as it turned out, been implanted in her mind by Gunther. Oh, if you had only known your mother then, Gunther had once said as they walked along a narrow, tightly hedged byway a mile or so outside of town. The day was cool, pleasant, 
cataract foggy. She was always my favorite, ever since she was a girl. So smart, so sensitive. Every discovery of every bad thing in the world came at her like a personal insult, a challenge to be faced down with great willpower and tiny fists. Gunther paused. She had an elemental kind of purity, something so rare. As you get older, you'll realize there are maybe twenty people like her a century. He laughed. <laughs> Listen to me, the scientist. They're rare, that much I know. Tom enjoyed hearing about his mother's early life, but it was painful as well. So might an archaeologist fall in love with a long-dead civilization and love the life that has fled to dust. She was very original, continued Gunther. I think that's what I loved most about her then. When she was young, and I got her to enjoy the endless length of the question why, she was a holy terror. Why? Why? It was like there was only one letter in the alphabet for her. Of course, she was very well protected, and that seems to be essential for the true flowering of the feminine soul. So protected and so loved. Deferred to as something special, but not in a way that made her vain or spoiled. As a princess, but a princess with responsibilities. Gunther sighed. And oh, my God, did she love her father and her brothers. You have no idea. You have had to live with the memory of a mother. She had this great personality, and there was nothing that she could not do. Learned the violin, two months. Chess, excellent, third try. Horseback riding, a natural. I know. It's always surprising to hear about a parent's early untapped abilities. But they pass on, Tom. Tom blew his nose with a handkerchief. The day was so foggy that it was more condensation than congestion. Gunther tapped his chin with a forefinger. This is my theory, and I believe I shall take it to my grave. Your mother was born with uncanny gifts. She was sheltered, respected, and protected enough to begin fully extending herself along the lines of her talents. Supported by her men, she flew. And then... And then there was a time when she was very far aloft, very high, and it was before she had really learned how to fly, and then everything fell apart. Gunther frowned. Actually, that's not quite true. There was something before that. What? She only ever hinted at it, but there was a betrayal first. By, by her father? I can't imagine that. No, Tom. Not her father. Tom stopped. Gunther walked on a few more steps, then turned around. An old pain was rising in him like a crest of lava through historical rock. My father, said Tom. Yes. Your father. What? All right, an affair? Gunther nodded. Tom whistled long and low. Should have been her. Her and Satan, that would explain Reginald. He immediately regretted the joke. Oh, God, said Gunther, waving a hand. He's just a pawn. But I must say, you're taking this awfully well. I've... 
I had this before, nodded Tom, with the frankness that Gunther had always loved. There's a great mystery about unhappy parents. I mean, I know, I probably know what is causing them so much pain, and they are both unhappy, but I can't speak it. It's too deep. But when you say father had an affair, I feel that it's true, because I have lived with the effects for 18 years. Gunther nodded approvingly. It's always a difficult question. When you know something about a family, and the children ask you frankly, and you did ask me frankly over the years, it is impossible to know exactly the right course. Speak too much, you are banished too little, and the children grow up under a load they don't even know they carry. Again, very scientific, smiled Tom, taking a deep breath. Gunther squinted suddenly. Are you close to your father, Tom? Tom's heart started beating fast. He wanted to stop, to spill something. But he was suddenly afraid of eye contact. We're not close, uncle. Call me Gunther. You're old enough. Tom laughed, but it was forced. His words came lightly, tightly, without emotion. No, and we never have been. We're ying and yang. He says, tomato, and I say tomato. He and Reginald are like a goddamned little coven. Ah, Peter, can I get you anything? Nothing other than your beneficial presence, son. And there I am, trapped upstairs, bleeding the venom from my mother. I am overfull with words, Gunther. I swear to God, overflowing. You are close to your mother, though. I have to sit down said Tom, plopping down on a small grassy patch where two paths met. A cow lowed against a fence, its nose snuffing through the wood. Gunther took off his coat, folded it, and sat on it right in the middle of the path, facing Tom. My mother, murmured Tom. You damn Germans. Do you love her? Well, of course, in the social sense, but that's... I love bits. The bits I see sometimes. I love the bits that are like the woman you talk about. The pre-war mother. The pre-me mother. But there's almost no conversation, you know. When I'm home, she keeps sending for me every day. Twice sometimes. Go on, Tom. Dad and Reginald say, sitting and smiling. Deep in conversation. Go on up. So I go, and it gives her some relief. She holds me tight. She talks and talks and talks. But with every word, I feel like I'm dissolving a little. Tom leaned back into the hedge, then realized that it could not take his weight, and sat back up again. He rubbed his eyes with the heels of his hands. Gunther nodded slowly, pain tightening his features. She does love you. I mean, she can't open her heart to you, so all you get are these words, which are poor substitutes, I'll grant. Why? Why can't she open her heart to me? And why is it me all the time? Why never Reg? Why does he get off scot-free? It's so humiliating. Does she pick me because I'm weaker? Because... 
I don't tell her where to go because I never refuse. And why do I never refuse? It's impossible to even imagine it. And that other goddamn pair, they'd rather throw me into the quicksand. Spread yourself wide, Tom, so we can walk on your back. Remember, it's a team effort. Tom could not help but laugh at that last line. <laughs> Some team. Well, they are a team, Tom, said Gunther softly. But that doesn't matter. She won't be free in the foreseeable future. From what? demanded Tom, oddly cross. From them? I'm going to be cryptic and irritating, Tom, said Gunther, standing suddenly and extending his hand. But remember, it takes great integrity to make great mistakes. Now, five years later, Gunther was back in his room. Good morning, Tom, said Gunther after they hugged. I was about to give up on you and go in search of a coffee. Gunther, good Lord, where have you been? Germany, France, Czechoslovakia, very briefly. But I'm back now. For how long? For good. Well, welcome back. Tom threw his legs over the side of the bed. What say we go in search of that coffee? No. I want to talk to you here. Tom paused. No catching up then? No. Tom nodded slowly, smoothing his pajama bottoms along his thighs. Then he looked up. So what is it? You've been here for two years, said Gunther, leaning back in his chair. Tell me about it. Tom frowned. It's... it's right for me. At the moment, I have enough to live on. Girls? A few, said Tom, staring at his knees. Gunther seemed like such a monk that discussing women seemed a little base. Nothing serious? Oh, no. Plans? As in, after the room? Gunther nodded. I don't know yet. So, said Gunther, gesturing at the books piled over all of Tom's room, you read. What did Erasmus say? I buy books, and then, if anything is left over, I buy food and shelter? Gunther smiled. What else? I read, I think, I write a little. I walk. I've done just about every street in London now, one side at least. Friends? One or two come from school, Hart in particular, but not many, no. Tom sighed. You're not here to hit me with the old cattle prod of ambition, are you? Not in the way you think. Tom held up a hand. All right. You can't be gone for two years, return like a thief in the night, and then be cryptic to boot. Gunther laughed. Tom was startled. He's not much of a laugher. All right, said the German. I suppose I was hoping to lead you to it gently by the nose, to spare your feelings, to prepare you for it, but... All right. He leaned forward, and suddenly... His eyes were intense, and Tom felt a little cold and very excited. Tom, said Gunther softly, you are sitting in this room because there's going to be a war. It was the most charged pause in either of their lives. It lasted for over a minute. Their eyes met and held. They blinked twice, right after one another. Do you want me to go on? 
asked Gunther finally. Tom's brow contracted slightly. He neither nodded nor shook his head. Do you want me to get you a coffee? Tom shook his head very slightly. A tear rolled down his cheek. Here, said Gunther, borrowing in his pockets for a handkerchief. He pulled one out and dabbed Tom's tear. All right, said Tom, shivering suddenly. He sat back in his bed, pulling his blankets up around him. What the fuck? Do you read the newspapers? asked Gunther. Tom shrugged. A little, not much. That helps, actually. Good, murmured Tom, his eyes gazing far beyond his surroundings. A war. I'm going to be clearer, said Gunther. There is no fate in human affairs. That is for physics. When I say there will be a war, I don't mean that war is inevitable. I mean that war is inevitable unless good men act. A spasm of pain crossed Tom's face. He sobbed suddenly, loudly. He took a deep breath and pressed his blankets to his face. Don't be embarrassed, said Gunther gently. There is no worse news under the sun. All right, Svengali, said Tom emptily after a while. Where does this come from? Gunther smiled. From you, of course. Tom's eyes narrowed. Do that again. I will play him thump you one. Gunther held up his hands. All right, all right. Why are you stalled? Why are you sitting in here? You are brave. You saved your brother from the mob. You are intelligent. You are athletic, charismatic, handsome, popular. You love knowledge. You have integrity. You gave up school rather than argue for something you detested. So why are you here? Why are you not participating? In life? No. You're alive. I mean, why aren't you participating in society? Tom shuddered. You mean like a businessman or a politician? Yes. Or an artist or a philosopher? Gunther paused very briefly. Or reporter? Tom frowned. Do you know? I've never actually thought of that. What? Not the occupations themselves. I mean, why I am not participating. I feel better here, more relaxed. I'm not sure there's room for me. Out there. He gestured at the little window. Go on. I seem to disagree with everyone I meet. They like me, and I like them, I mean, on the surface. Everyone can be funny. But there's this dead spot at the center of things, of people. Whenever anything of importance comes up, everyone freezes, gets uncomfortable, makes bad dismissive jokes, or strikes out verbally. But that's what I love the most. That's the air I breathe. And I don't know if the air I breathe is too rare for everyone else, or the air everyone else breathes is too rare for me. All I know is that we can't ever breathe the same air at the same time. I mean, they're all Reginald to some degree, all of them. 
Like, who? Oh, everyone, said Tom, his voice wispy with despair. Teachers, father, professors, coaches, everyone at school. Your mother? Tom paused. No, he said softly. No. She's striving for something else. Gunther nodded. What? Oh, he wants to make friends with the world again. And you don't. Tom smiled sadly. It's not that I don't. I do. I love the world. I'm just not such a fan of the people in it. Gunther smiled. We have much in common, you and I. But what has that got to do with war? Am I supposed to wage war against England? That's Reginald's way, thought Gunther, but held his tongue. Name me the people you know with honor. Tom pursed his lips. Well, you, I think, unless you've changed. The German smiled grimly. I haven't changed. All right, well... His eyes flashed. Wait a moment, you tricky German. We haven't even talked about what honor is. We know, you and I, said Gunther. Tell me. The courage to stand up for what is right, to go against the crowd, to fight for goodness, to tell the truth though the sky falls, to suffer the agonies of justice. All the little things, murmured Tom. All the little things, agreed Gunther. I don't know anyone like that. Not that... Well, what about you? Me? Tom laughed. I don't really think about myself. I mean, like that. Why not? I'm not a soldier. Sorry, that's not what I mean. I mean, I'm a little book mushroom here. What I see, said Gunther and have seen for twenty-two years, is a boy who always fought for what was right, who refused to compromise on issues of integrity, who had honor, who has honor. Tom frowned. His tears had dried up completely. He seemed to be standing on a high mountain before a view of endless icy peaks. He shivered and laughed, all right, I could see that. I mean, I try to do the right thing when I can. So it comes down to you and I, said Gunther. And that is why there will be a war, unless we do something. Tom laughed again, louder. It was a little hysterical, more of a giggle, actually. <laughs> okay, now I really need that coffee. I'm serious, Tom. Why are you here? I can't imagine it's for that, cried Tom. Germany will collapse, said Gunther. They said that in 1923, but the inflation she muddled through. They have been building an air force. I'm not surprised. They have been training pilots and chiefs of staff in Russia since 1921. I don't doubt. Germany wants an army again, said Tom. Why not? They had one for the last thousand years until we took it away. It's not a toy they're likely to stop missing. 
Gunther rolled his lips over his front teeth. He drummed his fingers on his knee. Go to Germany, he said finally. What? Go to Germany. I will pay. My God, man, cried Tom, throwing his covers aside. Sorry if that sounded disrespectful, but my God, go to Germany. Why? Because it will set you free. Why? It's not my goddamn fatherland. Sorry, I'll stop swearing. It's a bad habit of solitude. Why wouldn't you want to go? Go visit the friend you wrote me about. Klaus? I was never terribly close to Klaus. Tom giggled again. <laughs> that sounds funny, close to Klaus. Think of it as a holiday. Do you have a passport? Yes, said Tom. We were supposed to go on a debating tour before I left Oxford, but that... He paused, looking down at his hands, then looked up again. Do you know? I have absolutely no idea why I don't want to go to Germany. That's better, nodded Gunther. That's my boy. It's a very generous offer. Thank you. Sorry I was so ungracious. Gunther smiled, then leaned forward and patted Tom's knee. It's not a generous offer, Tom, he said. Trust me, it's an investment. Tom looked up, skepticism warring with fear. Really? he asked. Gunther nodded slowly. Of course. I was only half right when I said that you are sitting in this room because... There is going to be a war. Tom opened his mouth, said nothing, and did not close it. Gunther's grey eyes turned to chill stone. You are sitting in this room, Tom, because you know there will be a war, and you think we will lose. You think that goodness will lose. You think that goodness is weak because you don't understand evil. Why? Why not? stammered Tom. Gunther said, Because you grew up with evil, Tom. The end of book one. This is Stefan Molyneux, the author. I really appreciate you listening to this book. Please, if you're enjoying it, help me out. It's free for you to listen. Please share as you like freedomain.com forward slash donate. I would really appreciate that. This was a lot of work to research and write and quite emotionally painful to write, as you can imagine. So if you're enjoying it, there's lots more to come. This is only book one of three. freedomain.com forward slash donate to help me out. Thank you so much. I really look forward to your feedback.